Tanner, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. It's good to be here with you again for week two of Oxano, at the beginning of a new semester. And tonight we get to begin together a brand new series where we're going to be over the course of five weeks walking through a series on the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of being able to teach someone how to pray. Maybe it was a younger brother or sister that uh, if you're an older, elder sibling in the house, right, and you were just kind of like the know-it-all, you were the one that wanted to show the littles how to do everything, and so maybe you helped with VBS, you did this, that, and the other at the end, but like you were able to teach them how to pray. Maybe you were sharing your faith with a roommate. Maybe you were befriending someone in your workplace and they became, they put their trust in Jesus. And then in their discipleship, you were helping them to be able to learn how to pray. Or uh, for me, uh, I have an almost four-year-old and we are less than Two weeks out from uh, Baby Jenkins number two uh, that's going to be coming. So again, Ben, you're on standby, man. Get ready. Becca's calling you if something's happening. So if that's so, service is over early. I'll see you guys next week, maybe. But we in our household, we have Thomas. Like we, he's, he's a little man. He's a, he's a man of routine, and I love that. I mean, he, he is his father's son. And so we're going through, and like after we do bed at bath time, then we come in here, and then we, do, we read a book together, and then we come together and we pray. And as we're going through at different points, like we've gotten to the point where, you know, I would say a line, and then Thomas would repeat back after me, and every night virtually he would stop and be like, well, Mama's not praying. And I was like, well, buddy, Mama knows how to pray. Like, you're repeating after me. We're doing this together. And he's like, okay, dear God, dear God, thank you. Thank you for this day, for this day, and our family, and our family. So we're repeating over and over again. But he's almost four now. We're getting to the point where he's actually able to hear Mom pray, hear Dada pray, and then we turn it over to Thomas. And y'all, there is nothing that just warms this dad's heart more than being able to hear your son or your daughter be able to pray. And it's, you know, the, the, the typical young three-year-old things like, Dear God, thank you for Power Rangers and dinosaurs and Spider-Man and Mama, not Dada, but Mama, and thank you so much like for all this. And bacon, he loves bacon. And so they just thank you for all of these things. And then, but there was one night, y'all, that we were there praying, and Becca and I, you know, we're both like, as we're folding hands, like just trying to keep it together because part of the things that he says makes us just want to burst into tears, and the other things that he says just makes us want to burst out in laughter. And so we're going through, and he's saying, and thank you, God, for this, thank you, God, for that, and thank you, God, for our sins. And Becca and I were just like, you know, we just immediately we're like, I mean, do we stop him right here? Do we just keep, let him keep going? Do we correct this afterwards? Do we chalk it up that he's three? Like, what do we do? You know, one of those th- things that we didn't cover in a parenting class here at Dawson. It's over like, okay, well, what do we do? Well, we get to the end, and I'm just like, well, I can't let this hang. And I, so I'm just like, buddy, that was great, you know, and a compliment sandwich. You know, you give them the compliment, then you give the critique in the middle, and then a compliment on the end. And I was like, buddy, you know, that was really great. Thank you so much. But when you said thank you uh, for our sins, like, what did, what did you mean? Because, I mean, sins keep us from God. Sins is what separates us from him. Like, we don't want to thank God for those things. Those are things that we need to say that we're sorry for. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. I'm... 
Thank you for forgiving our sins. And I'm like, okay, whoo, okay, we're, we're gonna not have to, we don't have to talk to the preschool ministry here at Dawson. But so we're just, as we're going through, and I'm teaching him how to pray. I'm going through, and as I'm teaching him, uh, as Becca's teaching him, we're doing things, I mean, just that our mom and dads did for us. Uh, growing up in Christian families. But maybe some of you here, you didn't have that growing up. Maybe you've been going through and you had someone that had been following Jesus for a little bit longer to be able to turn around and to be able to show you the ropes. But at the beginning, it can feel very awkward. In the beginning, it can feel very stilted. In the beginning, it can feel very manufactured or contrived. But what we are doing is we are seeking to learn how to pray. We don't have to figure it out all on our own. That in God's word, as he has given it to us, that Jesus himself in the pages of the New Testament actually shows us and lays out a pattern for us on how then we should pray. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the course of these next five weeks together is we're going to be taking the Lord's Prayer and we're going to be looking at it line by line. And when we do so... Yes, we're going to be praying the Lord's Prayer here as a part of these services. Maybe you grew up and it was something that you memorized. Maybe it was something that was the first time you heard it tonight. Or maybe you had a high school coach that was just like before the game. Everybody touched somebody, you know, and you'd rattle off the Lord's Prayer and then go about your business. But as we come to the Lord's Prayer here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be seeing how Jesus is teaching his disciples and then by extension how he is teaching us how to pray. There are elements in this prayer. There are things that are highlighted. There are contours that Jesus gives us that shape our prayer lives. Because you know, Jesus doesn't say, pray this. But he says, pray then like this. So it's good, it's appropriate, it's right to be able to pray these words verbatim. It's God's word. But these words, it gives us a framework, it gives us aspirations, it gives us things to include, to keep in mind as we seek to pray because there are times where it grows stale. There are times maybe where you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're just longing for that feeling again where you're just like, I'm not even really sure like if my words are getting above the ceiling right now. What we need isn't to be able to go back and try to manufacture something new or to puff up some of these new feelings, but rather to return to something old, to something time-tested, spirit-given, word-empowered, and it's the Lord's Prayer that gives us a pattern right here. So we're going to dive in tonight in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And now what's coming immediately before this is Jesus is giving, he's kind of painting the scene. He's telling you this is what prayer should not be. He's arguing from the negative. But now we're getting into the positive, the constructive, that this is what prayer is supposed to be. And he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the prayer begins with a relational address. Where Jesus is saying that you are coming to God and when you appear before him as his people, that you have access to be able to call him Father. And when you begin this it's, and you say, hallowed be your name, it's not so much a praise as it is a petition. It is asking God to do something and it is asking for God for his name to be revered, for his name to be counted holy, for his name to be recognized for what it is in and through and around us. 
that hallowed be your name. It's another way to be able to say, would your name be considered holy? And that's a, that's a good Bible word. That's, that's one that we use a lot. That's one that a lot of language or a lot of other ideas or synonyms could be imported into it or attached onto it. But what we have right here, rather than give you a dictionary definition of holiness, what I would love to be able to do is to give you an Old Testament picture of what happens when God's people catch a glimpse of his holiness. When God's people just get a slice, when they're able to see just a little bit, when God answers this prayer for his name to be considered holy. And so we are taken to Isaiah chapter 6 that Cole so beautifully read for us just a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord seated up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, y'all, it filled the temple. Like, just, there's sometimes, for people that maybe grew up in church, this is a very familiar passage. You might have heard two, ten sermons on this passage before. But let, don't let your familiarity with this passage stand in the way of true understanding of this passage. So Isaiah, right here, in the, king, in the year that the king died, he was going to the temple and he had a vision of God. That this was a time when there was a lot of national turmoil. That this was a time, King Uzziah, you know, King Uzziah, he was uh, a good king. that had a relatively tranquil reign. But then over the course, it got a little bit more towards the end, started to taper off a little bit. It got a little bit tragic. And then right here in 740 BC, he dies. And you see, like here in our day and age, national leaders are very important. But, you know, we have three branches of government, right? It's not just one. But like in that day and age, everything rose and fell on the king. And when, so when the king dies, the nation is in turmoil. They're looking at what is going to happen. What's the succession plan? Are we protected? How are we going to be provided for? Are we now going to be carted off? What is, going to, what is my family going to look like? What is my grandchildren's family going to look like? And as they're looking around, and as Isaiah, as a prophet of God in that time, is no doubt being bombarded with questions. He's being gone to and asked, hey, what's about to happen here? What's about to happen here? What is this going to look like? How will this affect me? How is this going to affect you? But he's going through, and rather than looking and trying to figure out, okay, well, these are our next ten action steps for us to be able to get through this. Rather than him going back to his uh, self-help book section and trying to figure out five tips to win and influence people. And he's not going to any of that, but where does he turn? He turns to the temple. He turns to the Lord. And it's in that setting that he sees a vision of the true king. The true king who is not under threat from any outside or internal power. The king who is not under threat of being overthrown or of dying. The king who will not abdicate. And the king who is the best for his people. The only king who rules in wisdom and in perfect justice. And as he goes and he sees the vision of the true king, he is getting more than he bargained for. And so as he comes in, as he sees the vision of the Lord seated on a throne, 
the royal imagery and just the power of him just being able to sit there. And then you see the majesty that is surrounding him. That he has a robe that's train fills the temple like it's skirting him out. Like he's not going to be, there's no room for him in there. So like picture the long train of a bride's dress. And that right here, filling the temple, just speaking to in vivid imagery, the majesty, the power, and the royalty of this king. And if that's not enough, then we see above him stood the seraphim, these flaming angels. Each had six wings, and with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. I can't even begin to imagine or paint a picture other than what's already given right here. But he sees these angels with many wings, and what are they doing? Well, we see this in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is brought into this vision. He is seeing the Lord, the one true king, seated high, royal and holy. And as he's looking up there, he is able to see the true king. Who will never die. The true king who will never leave his throne. The true king who will reign forever. This is where he goes for consolation. This is where he goes for comfort. This is where he goes for answers. And it's not the main point of the passage. But it's a point of the passage. That when we as the people of God start to undergo individually and corporately, when we undergo some of these times of distress, these times of turmoil, where is it that we are turning? Is it to your Amazon wish list for a little retail therapy? Is it to private browsing mode for things that you don't want others to be able to find? Are you going over here and you're just going to attack that to-do list with everything that you've got? Or are you going to go over here, you're going to throw yourself completely into this or that relationship. Or you're just going to continue to pursue this career. You're going to aim for that other bullet point on your resume. You're just going to look for this or for that to keep you busy. Or you're going to completely unplug, maybe even substances. Maybe overindulging in food. Where do you go for consolation when the times of distress come? Let us go to the Lord. Let us see. God knew he didn't need all of these other things. He didn't need a three-year plan. But he needed to remember who it was that was on the throne. But Isaiah's vision doesn't stop there. Even more is revealed to him. He hears the seraphim calling one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That right here, the holy, 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 these emblazoned angelic beings, they're calling to one another and saying, holy, holy, holy. And now maybe some of you grew up in church and you've sung that hymn. You're like, been there, done that, holy, holy, you know, all that kind of stuff. You've been able to see that. It's like, okay, yeah, they repeated it three times to be able to fill the, the line or whatever, to be able to take out the, the measure or the meter or whatever. Kara could help me with the musical terminology later. But with being able just to say, holy, holy, holy. But what is happening right here, the Jew, it's a Jewish literary device for emphasis and superlatives. 
It's like, you remember like high school with the superlatives? I don't know if people still do your yearbooks and all that kind of stuff. Like where you're voted like best hair or most likely to succeed or most friendly or something like that. And, you know, you're the superlatives and like you're voted out of everybody else in your class, right? Well, it's that like a superlative, good, better, best, most, all this other kind of stuff. So when God right here is referred to in the thrice holy, it is the only time in scripture that an attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. This is the only characteristic. This is the only descriptor. This is the only attribute that is lifted up and repeated three times with reference to God. Holy, holy, holy. And these holy synonyms, pure, clean, light, but it means separate, transcendent, exceeding the usual limits in a category all on its own. God is holy, holy, holy. And then they finish, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's interesting, right? Especially after the seraphim and Isaiah, as he's recounting this vision, is he's holy, holy, holy. You would expect them, right? If there's so much emphasis put on this one particular attribute, then it would be holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his holiness, right? But they say the whole earth is full of his glory. And right here we see this intimate and intricate connection between God's glory and his holiness. Because you see, God's glory is the going public of his holiness. A lot of times when I hear college students, they've read books by John Piper. That was me. I was one of those. I read a book called Desiring God. It gripped my life and it completely like, enlarged my view of God and loving it. It did the same thing for my wife. I read that book and gave it to her. <laughs> it took us a long time to be able to work through. But as I was going through and, you know, was one of those college students that was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working for the glory of God. I'm praying for the glory of God. I'm serving for the glory of God. And it became kind of one of those things. And I was like, it's one of those words you say so much. And you're like, I don't know if I really know what this means. I'm using it all the time. It's one of those good churchy words. I know I'm supposed to be all about the glory of God. I know I'm supposed to be serving towards the glory of God. But what does it really mean? What is the glory of God? And going here to Isaiah chapter 6, and God's glory being the going public of his holiness, that the holiness that he has with himself, as it goes out into the, all the earth, it is manifested and reflected and takes root and grows and is refracted around to other people around it. That is his glory. As it is shining all through the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's connected, it's showing his utter holiness as creator. The only one that could think up and then execute and implement and sustain all of this. That God's holiness is directly connected to his glory. So this first line of the prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would your name be considered holy in all the earth? It's really a confrontational beginning to the Lord's prayer. Because it is asking for God's glory, for God's holiness to be recognized, for his glory to expand, and not my own. We're forced to ask here at the beginning, whose glory are you working for? 
in the degree program that you're pursuing, in the line of work that you're in, in the bullet points that you're chasing after, in the types of friends that you're hanging out with, in the particular relationship that you've attached yourself to, in this, that, or the other, how are you work? Are you looking to make money, to have security, to build fame, to accumulate followers? Are you doing this for your own glory? Are you trying to build your own kingdom here? Or are you going to work and labor for and find meaning, significance in the only place that it can be found? And that is in working towards the glory, working for the glory of God. Because God is holy and if we are working for anything other than His glory, we will be exposed in His presence. Because that's what happened to Isaiah in verse 4. Let's continue reading. And the foundations of the thresholds shook... And the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah said, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Isaiah is undone. The foundations of the thresholds weren't the only things that were shaking, but Isaiah is quaking in his sandals right here. That is, he is faced up to the glory of God, seeing him in his unrestricted holiness. The only thing that he can see is himself in contrast, and it is not a pretty picture. That in light of the holiness of God and the beauty, the radiance therein, he only sees his woe is me for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amidst a people of unclean lips. You see, he had been observing the king, the worship that was happening with the seraphim, but it now came to him. Now he was sizing himself up in the presence of the Almighty and he was not measuring up. There was no way that he could play church any longer. There was no way he could play temple any longer. It was back when my wife and I, we were serving in middle Georgia. I was speaking at an event where there were a lot of international students and it was just incredible. There was a university there that had a relationship with Guangzhou, China. And so we had just a lot of these international students that were coming and super ripe, fruitful time of ministry to be able to go and to be able to share with them. But as I was going through and as I was seeking to figure out a way to be able to connect, I was preaching from one of the Psalms. And as I was going through and I was talking about the fact that the Lord is a king. He is the king of his people. There was actually another young woman there who was there from middle Georgia. She stayed in town to be able to go to school there. And afterwards, her name was Olivia. Olivia came up to me and she said, I've been in church my entire life. I had gone over here. I had tried to do this on my own. It wasn't really on my radar. I was just glad to be out of the house. And I can't tell you why or how, but I have never thought about the Lord as king of all creation. And with his king, his rule. And how I want to be under that. 
And so I got to, right there in that room, it was over beside this car dealership. And we, it was just the last place I ever thought that I would be praying with someone, helping them to be able to respond to the work of God in their life in that moment. But being able to walk with Olivia J right there in that moment as she prayed to follow Jesus and to recognize him as the king of her life, she could no longer play church when she was confronted and sized herself up in relation to the almighty that when you catch a vision of who he really is, you cannot just walk out the back door. That when Isaiah right here, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amidst a people of unclean lips. He was exposed. He came apart. And he's, he realizes his lips were unclean and those of the ones around him. And he realizes all of this. Why? Because he has seen the king. Because he has seen the Lord. And he could not stand the presence of God. It's, it's like a, if y'all remember back in 2017, do y'all remember the eclipse uh, when that was all the rage, it was like during the summer and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, people were going crazy. They were like, you know, had the eclipse glasses or they had like the little shoebox things, like a d- leftover dioramas from third grade. They were breaking out so that they could go and they could catch a picture of this eclipse and this and that. And, you know, I, I go outside and, you know, we see it. And I was working at a church at the time and it was around lunch break. And so we go outside and it basically just looked like an Instagram filter was on everything for a little while. It was, I wasn't too impressed, but everybody was like, don't look directly at the sun. Like you think you can look at the sun, but don't. Like you'll go blind when you look at it, even with the eclipse going on, right? But there is something about, like, even me with these lights right here, but when you cannot stare into the sun, your eyes cannot physiologically handle the intensity of the rays that are coming out. We are nothing compared to the source. Or in a similar way, like I was leading a group of college students on a mission trip to Toronto. And, you know, we, it was getting ready for the last day. We had a few hours before we go into the airport. And we're like, we can't be this close to Toronto and not go see Niagara Falls. Anybody ever seen Niagara Falls before? Yeah, so we were on the Canadian side and we went on the Hornblower. You know, so apparently there are like these rival factions of different made of the mists on the U.S. side and the Hornblower on the Canadian. So we were on the Canadian side, so we went on the Hornblower. And we, that's basically the boat that you go out and they take you like right up next to the falls as close as you can get you have the big old ponchos and everything like that and upwards I was like yeah I mean that's a big waterfall that's pretty cool I guess but you get down on that boat and you get in front of the spray and I had on glasses I effectively had on windshields and I'm over there and it was to the point where I physically could not stand to have my head turned towards the rushing spray coming down from this waterfall And as I was reflecting more on that moment, I couldn't help but think that this is a lot of what Isaiah is probably feeling as he is in the presence of God right here. That he does not measure up to that which he is observing. That he cannot stand in that presence. That he does not want to be there any longer. It's uncomfortable. He's vulnerable. He's exposed. And if left here too long, destruction would be coming his way. And so he's lost, he's undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. He realizes that God is holy and that we are far off in sin. So he is utterly ruined. And like other encounters of scripture, when people face up to the glory of God, they fall face down and hit the deck. 
But the story doesn't end there. We continue on in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, one of those same angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the shouting angels comes with a coal and touches his mouth. What Isaiah had very confessed that was unclean. And, you know, for some of us, we're like, I mean, I was not expecting the story to take that kind of a turn. So one of these flaming angels goes over to this altar. They get a pair of, like, I'm guessing golden tongs or something like that. And they go down into the fire. They rustle something. They bring out a coal. They take it over here. And then they touch this guy's lips. Like, what on earth does that mean? Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Like, yeah, I want to get there, but that's how I have to do it. Like, I have to have singed lips, you know, to be able to get this taken care of. But it's in the words and the descriptors that Isaiah uses, in the vision that he sees and that God lovingly shows him, that the angel goes and takes a coal from the altar of sacrifice. And he pulls it out. And he goes over to Isaiah and with the burning coal, still hot from consuming the sacrifice, he touches and purifies the very part that Isaiah confessed was unclean. And the angel looks at him and says, your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. That yes, Isaiah had realized, he had gotten a vision, he understood, God is holy and I'm a sinner. He is high and I am far away. He is lifted up and I am lost in my sin. But if he had just stayed there, it would have been an incredibly tragic story. It's kind of like a, you know, with a lot of the nursery rhymes that you maybe grew up singing. I don't know when the last time you evaluated uh, these nursery rhymes that you learned, but I see some of you head bobbing. Maybe you've done this. A lot of them are kind of disturbing. Right? Like ring around the posies? Goodness gracious. Or we get over here, and the one that my mind immediately went to when studying this passage was Humpty Dumpty. And yeah, in popular art and literature and all the little kids' nursery rhyme books, he's depicted as an egg, but it says that nowhere in the nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty could have been a person. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Why have a kid's song about that? That this man or egg, if we want to make it a little anthropomorphic egg, is sitting up high, he falls down, he's broken beyond repair. All the king's resources, all of his people, all of the personnel, nothing can be done to put Humpty back together again. Sing song. Let's put it in a kid's book. That if Isaiah was left in the woe is me, then it would have been just as tragic of a story as Humpty Dumpty that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. But thanks be to God that the king in this story can do something about it. Thanks be to God that the king in this story is able not just to put somebody back together, but actually to make them atoned, is actually able to make them healed, is actually able to make them whole. 
that the king in this story is able not just to set them back up on solid ground so that they can go on their merry way, but actually crowns them with honor, gives them a place, draws them close, and then sends them out with a message. That the king in this story is gracious, that God is gracious, and he makes a way for us to be rid of what keeps us from him. That the very thing that Isaiah confessed was unclean, that kept him from him, in this instance, was his unclean lips. And God reaches down, condescends through this angel, and touches that very part. God is not afraid to touch what is messy in your life. God is not hands off. God is not disgusted. God doesn't want to be at hands length away. God will be there and will enter into the mess that you find yourself in. And God is able to make the unclean clean. God is able to make the far off near. God is able to make the dead alive, the ones who have been walking in darkness, to walk in glorious light. That this God comes and he makes him clean. And Isaiah experiences that we are brought near through sacrifice. But we don't stay there. Verse 8, And I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God speaks and Isaiah speaks. And do you notice there's a move here from woe am I to here am I. And the only way that somebody can move from woe am I to here am I is through the sacrifice that paves a way. And for here, it was foreshadowing in the Old Testament, the altar of sacrifice, and that coming and being applied to Isaiah's life that now we we knew in that point by foreshadowing picture, we know by name, and it was Jesus. That it's no longer just a coal from an altar that's applied to your life, but now it's blood from a cross. That now we can be set right, we can be set free, we can be made clean through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice that God himself made, that God himself bore, that God himself took on and now has given freely to us. That is the only way someone can move from woe am I to here am I. And so he says, here am I, send me. I am now forgiven, I'm now redeemed, and from this sacrifice, I'm made whole, I'm put back together, and with this vision, I'm not cowering in the brokenness anymore, it's not going to be more of the same, but thanks be to God that now I can go and I can tell others what I've experienced. Because you see, sinners saved by sacrifice are happy to be sent. Sinners saved by sacrifice are happy to be sent. It's like with this couple that we watched in this missions video just a few moments ago. That they, with their family, they were saved by sacrifice, but they were happy to be sent to this place where people did not know the name of Jesus. That yes, that there was this village that they were going to and they were working on the coast. And as they were around with the witch doctors and they were seeing people Turn from darkness to light. That yes, sinners saved by sacrifice are happy to be sent because it's not anything that they have not already experienced and received from the Lord. That with this message, they answered the call like, whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
it is a very real possibility that the Lord is stirring and going to be calling some of you here to be able to take the name of Jesus to where it is not known yet. But for more of you, it most likely will be similar to Isaiah because Isaiah, at this point, he wasn't going back to the nations. Isaiah was having to go back to his people. Isaiah was having to go back home. For you, a lot of you, you're going to be having to go back to campus. You're going to have to be going back to the workplace. You're going to have to be going back with your family and with your friends in your hometown that you'd rather soon forget. And that when the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? That for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus and turned away from sin, dead ways of living, that we now, being saved by sacrifice, are happy to be sent to the places around the world and around the block to the nations and to our neighbors, that we are now happy to share this message widely and liberally as we tell of what we have experienced in our own hearts and in the way now that God's sacrifice has been applied to us and that we no longer have to live in fear. We no longer have to live under judgment. We no longer have to be down and in the corner, but now we can be with God again. You can be with God again. And now as we go and as we tell others, we are delighted to be sent because of this progression we see in Isaiah, we see in the life of every believer, a recognition of God's holiness and of our sin. And the only way that there can be reconciliation, the only way there can be atonement, the only way we can be brought back together is through sacrifice. And God, in His Son, has taken it on Himself. And now we who live and who walk and trust in Jesus, we now have tremendous freedom to be able to share this with any and with everyone that we meet. Because we are happy to be sent and to share with others the hope that we have found. So when we pray this prayer, when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are praying to our God who has made a way. And who has made a way through the peace, bringing guilt, cleansing, shame-removing sacrifice of his Son. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here am I. Send me. Because sinners saved by sacrifice are happy to be sent. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that your name would be considered, recognized, counted as holy. Would it begin first in our lives, and then, God, would we be able to see it happen in the lives of others? God, in places where your name is not yet known, in places that are ripe for the harvest, and would it be known here in Birmingham, would you use us? Would you shape us? Would you remind us of your holiness in the life we now have with you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So here at Oxano, if you're new with us tonight, every week after the sermon, we do something that we call 120 seconds. And basically what it is, it's two minutes of silence 
for us to be able to answer these two questions personally. What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? I encourage people to get a little journal, to rip out a scrap piece of paper, to get the notepad app on their phone, and to answer these two questions in response to seeing God's word and then in response to hearing it preached. What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? Take 120 seconds. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.